Hi and welcome to this third episode of Om Filosofens Liv och Tankar, a pod where we discuss philosophy and philosophical development with current philosophers. I'm Fredrik Eriksson, liaison librarian in philosophy here at Lund University. And by my side, as per usual, today we have a sick... Uh, Martin Jansson, uh, senior lecturer in theoretical philosophy uh, in uh, at Lund University. And with us t- today, we have Katrin Gleopogin, professor in theoretical philosophy at Stockholm University. Welcome to Lund. Thank you so much for having me. And as one of our ambitions is to let our guests talk about their philosophical development, uh, it might be a good idea to start from the beginning and uh, see what you remember of your first philosophical uh, thoughts and so, so on. Yeah, for me it was rather indirect because... I'm from this family of priests, <laughs> so my father is a Lutheran priest, and there have been Lutheran priests in generations in my family. And I came across philosophy when I was in high school, because <laughs> I was of the opinion that I shouldn't choose religion. We had to choose between religion and philosophy at that stage. And I was totally convinced that I knew much more about religion than the religion teacher. So, okay, I'll go for philosophy. I also wanted to annoy my father a little bit, I suspect. (laughs) So that's how it started. Um, After high school, though, I was uh, convinced that I ought to become a priest. So I actually started with studying theology. So I took a whole year of uh, theology, and that was in Hamburg, Hamburg University. Um, So I learned Hebrew and Greek. Fortunately, I had already done Latin in school. Um, But somehow, I also got very tempted to listen in to philosophy lectures, which I did. And it was pretty clear very soon that this was so much more what interested me and that I uh, switched after a year and started doing uh, philosophy instead. Was there certain questions that were more tempting to to, uh, to read about or yeah, studying? What, what happened was that, um, well, I went to this seminar, which was in philosophy of language. And I, I mean, I had absolutely no clue of... of uh, anything beyond Kant (laughs) at that point. But here was this seminar which sounded really intriguing. It was about what meaning, linguistic meaning really is and how is it determined and how do we go about constituting it in our community and things like that. So the class was on Quine, word and object. Not exactly maybe the thing to do in your first term in philosophy, But, yeah, I don't know. There was, we were thinking about radical translation and we were thinking about two dogmas of empiricism and there was all this stuff about analyticity and how it didn't really exist. And I was just, I mean, swept away. That was it. That was the thing I wanted to do. Yes, meaning. What is that? How do we make it? Yep. (laughs) So I was totally sold. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I'm I'm mostly a philosopher of language still, so... (laughs) Yes. So you got stuck in that I got field. stuck there, yes. <laughs> I mean, I've broadened, but <laughs> it's still mostly philosophy of language, theory of content, 
uh, that I do and uh, that's been there from the very start. So I guess I, I simply lucked out. I it didn't, In this very first philosophy seminar I ever took, it was the thing I really wanted to do in life. <laughs> do you remember who, who taught that? Oh yeah, sure. That was the guy who later became what we in German call our Dr. Papa. <laughs> What is a Dr. Papa? <laughs> that is your supervisor for your <laughs> okay. dissertation. His name is Herbert Schnittelbach. And he taught at Hamburg. He's um, a guy who descends from the Frankfurt School. So his supervisors had been Adorno and Habermas. So I am actually third generation Frankfurt School. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Which you won't um, detect in my philosophy today, I think. <laughs> so, so early on when you wrote your... your Bachelor thesis and or master thesis. What did you, what particular topics did you write on, then? Um, my master's thesis was on Donald Davidson at the time. Okay. And so I mean, he was a student of Quine's. <laughs> so again, that's very genealogical. Um, and and there too, the main questions were had to do with um, meaning determination. So he has this. Um, thought experiment that he calls radical interpretation, which is slightly um, developed and changed scenario that you already find in Quine, um, uh, which is supposed to tell us something about the ultimate data we can have for what um, expressions in a language, a natural language, mean. Um, and... That's what 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 the uh, master's thesis was about. That uh, scenario and its consequences, and how it had been criticized, and um, yeah. Can you say a little bit more about radical um, interpretation, or what that involves? What is the sort of uh, the key features of a thought experiment? In radical interpretation, you have a figure called the radical interpreter. <laughs> And that is someone like you and me, someone who has a language um, and is a normally rational human being with normal sensory equipment, let's say, and so on, who goes out um, to with the task of interpreting a radically foreign language. That is a language about she doesn't know anything. Um, there are no shortcuts to be taken. The words do not resemble the words in the radical interpreter's own language. Um, and uh, she is supposed to develop a semantic theory for that language. That is a theory that will interpret every expression and every sentence in the language that the speakers might utter. Um, and that's, of course, a very stiff task. Um, and a lot of uh, philosophical assumptions go into that that even can be done. Um, and the idea is that, well, what kind, the, the question is what kind of data would you have to go on in such a, a situation? And there isn't that much, right? I mean, you, you see the speakers of this language. Um, they talk to each other. They try to talk to you. And they speak in situations that you can observe. And the idea is that that um, is enough. Uh, if you have a lot of data about in which situations speakers utter 
what expressions, um, the idea is you can figure out what their words mean. So you start with um, identifying, according to Davidson, an attitude that he calls holding true. Uh, and he thinks that that is determined by observable behavioral data. So you can like some can can see when a speaker thinks a sentence is true. So you detect these attitudes of holding true towards uninterpreted sentences that it's sentences you don't understand yet, but you think okay this is a sentence. And he is like, for instance, imagine it's raining and the speaker says es regnet, <laughs> and that happens sort of systematically. This sentence is only held true when it's raining. And then you form the not unreasonable hypothesis that that means it's raining. And then the idea is if you uh, have lots and lots and lots unlimited data of this kind, uh, that will allow you to break into this this language and to come up and uh, formulate your uh, semantic theory, which as we can see, is an empirical theory. There are these data that confirm or um, support it. And uh, in the end, you will have this theory that gives you for each expression a meaning, and then you can interpret what all these guys are saying. So, so that's the idea. And then, of course, the question is, okay, what does this really have to do with what meaning is or what Meaning, what determines meaning? Isn't this just a method for finding out what people mean? So the question is, is this epistemology or is it metaphysics of meaning? And according to Davidson, it is both. And, and that is what is characteristic for this kind of philosophy of language that um, at the bottom, as I said, there is this assumption that, that meaning is something that is um, by nature essentially public. It's essentially accessible to a normal human being. You don't need to have particular uh, cognitive faculties or, or anything like that. It should be, um, you should be able to figure it out on the basis of data that are accessible to a normal interpreter, to someone who just understands a language. And then the idea is, okay, so these are the metaphysical facts that actually determine the meaning facts. So you get something that you can call uh, epistemical, metaphysical picture of, of meaning determination. And that is very characteristic for philosophy, Quine and Davidson style. That, you, uh, that meaning has this double nature. It's sort of an evidence-constituted property. Um, so, and you stayed with Davidson when you started doing your um, dissertation as well, or did you go into another area? Um, well, what happened after I had finished my master's thesis, actually, I had been in Berkeley and I had been studying with Davidson. Oh, in person? In person, before I wrote my master's thesis, but I went back to, went back to Germany mostly for personal reasons. Uh, well, my supervisor was on the editorial board for a series of popular, well, popular, but for philosophy students and a series of introductions into great figures of philosophy. And they didn't have something on Davidson, didn't have anything on Davidson. So he decided that the next thing I should do <laughs> was use my master's thesis for writing an introduction like that. So I wrote this little, it's a little pocket book. It's out of print since a long time ago. But that was the first thing I did um, after the master's thesis. And then 
I moved back to California, actually, for a while. Um, again, for reasons that not really had anything to do with philosophy. But I was living in San Francisco, and of course it was very tempting. I mean, Berkeley was just across the bay, so I went and sat in a lot of philosophy classes there, met a lot of people I'm still good friends with. What year are we in here? What what sort of time frame are we? Now we're in the early 90s. Early 90s, yeah. (laughs) Okay, that helps. (laughs) Exactly. Um, And then, yes, I had to think about what to write my dissertation on. And in Germany, they are always like, oh, you should be very broad, so maybe not go on with the same kind of thing. But I didn't really feel like doing something extremely different. So what happened was that I simply looked at what other questions are there that concern meaning determination and one thing that had started to get very hip at the time (laughs) that was the discussion of the so-called normativity of meaning Um, that was inspired by Kripke's book on Wittgenstein Uh, What what, what is normative? uh... Yeah, that is a very good question and that was one of the questions that um, I realized very early on in this project that uh, needed to be needed to be <laughs> tackled because there were all these people who were saying, oh, of course, meaning is normative. Of course it is. What else could it be? How, how else could it be determined? It's rules that determine meaning, right? I mean, when we speak, we follow rules, uh, the rules of the language. And they somehow um, must be responsible for what the expressions mean. But everybody in that discussion seemed to mean something slightly different. Uh, so it was it was not um, like there was a uniform topic here where you could say, okay, it's either yes or no, it's normative or not. But it's like, well, there's this form of normativity and there's that form of normativity. And does it have something to do with rules? Does it even have anything to do with meaning determination? And it wasn't totally clear. So a big part of what... what um, I did then was simply catalog what people were saying and how you could think about it and try to get some sort of systematic grip on the logical terrain there. And as I said, it it started, or the discussion that started in at around that time was heavily inspired by by Kripke. But of course, there had been a lot of thinking that connected rules with meaning already in the 50s and 60s. On Kripke's interpretation of Wittgenstein, uh, there is this radical skeptic who wants to drive us to the conclusion that there are no meaning facts. <laughs> so he goes around questioning people as to um, candidate facts for determining what something means and so he's like okay the plus sign means addition you think but what determines that it doesn't mean coordination instead where coordination is this slightly different function that diverges at a point that you haven't considered so far Uh, let's say you have added up to 
numbers up to the sum of 125 or something. And then after that, uh, the skeptic says, uh, this function just turns out five. Whatever you add to whatever, the result will be five. That's the quotient function. So it's not the sum that you're supposed to answer with when you are asked what is 167 plus What's the other one? 60. No, it's 125 plus 67, Kripke's example. In any case, so what makes you so sure that you should answer with the sum and not with five? And then you come up with all sorts of answers, like that's how you have done it always before. You have this algorithm in your head. This is what the rule tells you. And the uh, skeptic just debunks one after the other and says, no, this doesn't determine that at all. Why should it determine that? It's equally compatible. Everything you have said before is totally compatible with that this series continues like that and not uh, with the sum. It, it just is five after a certain while. And uh, the, the, the question then, of course, is um, how to answer the skeptic. Can the skeptic be answered? Or is it uh, true that there, there are no meaning-determining facts? Um, and in the course of these considerations, there's a short passage <laughs> where Kripke says, well, here's an answer that one could give, and it has to do with the dispositions of the speaker. I'm disposed to answer with the sum, not with five. Therefore, addition is what I mean, not coordition. And um, then he says, yeah, but that is really totally on the wrong track, because your disposition only determines what you will say. But the relation of meaning and intention to future action is not descriptive, it's normative. <laughs> you should answer with the sum. It doesn't matter what you will answer. Therefore, all accounts of this kind will never succeed or something like that. And that is um, a passage that is very hard to interpret. What, what does this mean? And there are tons of interpretations out there. And that's what sparked this whole uh, discussion of the normativity of meaning at, at that time in, in the 90s. So that's how it all started. And uh, part of my dissertation that was about Kripke on, on following a rule and uh, meaning determination. What position did you end up in? Did you end up agreeing with Kripke or denying the normativity of meaning? Or I ended up denying the normativity of meaning. I don't think. Well, again, that, that is a claim that is um, somewhat careless to make. I mean, if I like to describe myself as an anti-normativist about meaning. <laughs> but you always need to say, okay, um, what does the person who is a normativist in this context mean by it? And am I against that? <laughs> but I can say that so far, I haven't come across an interpretation of that claim where I have agreed. <laughs> so. so what was the topic of your PhD? And the that exactly that was, was the topic, the is meaning normative? So does that question um, still follow you, follow you today? Is it something you still work on or did you yeah, leave that, that question, behind? Or? That question has like haunted me. <laughs> um, 
And uh, in Stockholm today, we are this group of people who have made all sorts of anti-normativistic claims, all in this broad area to do with meaning, with content, uh, with assertion, with reasons. And now some of us are working on so-called normativity of logic, too, which is a new incarnation <laughs> in this area. Um, so, so what happened was that while I wrote my dissertation, um, I met Orsa Wiegfosch. <laughs> we were both in New York at the time. She was doing her PhD there. I came as a visiting scholar for just a couple months. And um, we became the best of friends. And, well, we were sort of writing on the same topic. <laughs> so <laughs> we uh, also realized that we thought rather similarly about these matters and um, have been uh, working together ever since. <laughs> and now we're at the same department and our offices are next to each other and we still write papers together, um, sometimes on the normativity of meaning, more often on the normativity of content or belief. Uh, and um, the latest uh, paper we have done was on, uh, in what sense, reasons could be normative if if any. So you're talking about belief here. Uh, why is that interesting in a philosophical context? Well, belief is this state of mind that in philosophical parlance is one of the most um, fundamental cognitive states of mind that we have. So when a philosopher talks about belief, <laughs> what we mean is any state where you um, think that something is the case. <laughs> so right now you believe that there is this glass of water in front of you, that we are sitting here talking, that there is a floor in the room, <laughs> that the world is uh, five million years old. Um, is that the right number? In any case, you have tons and tons of things that you think are true, that you hold true. So it's it's a very um, wide category for all these kinds of states. So it has nothing to do with um, religion. It doesn't even need to be a very strong um, conviction or anything, uh, which makes it hard to translate belief into both Swedish and German, because <laughs> yeah. all the terms we have there, they sound much stronger. But it's, of course, true of English, too, that we philosophers have taken this this notion and um, bent it a bit to, to our, our needs. Um, but if you want to, to understand um, philosophically, the mind of a thinking creature, <laughs> believe, is one of the most fundamental things that you can try to, to understand. So belief is super interesting. <laughs> so when do you, you spent uh, um, your research belief a lot, when did that start or how was that after your PhD? Yes. And how did it, that come about? I think that was basically a fallout of these normativity discussions because there was a, was a development um, where some people, at least, who were heavily into normativity of meaning first, um, sort of realized that, nah, maybe that wasn't exactly what they wanted to say. Maybe the thesis they were really after was that content, the content of our mental states and beliefs, one of those, was normative. And that that had something to do with how 
we ought to use our concepts or something like that. Um, and then once you start that, you start wondering, okay, in that case, I mean, if, if you have this, this thought that a content that you can think um, has certain correctness conditions, if I think that there's a pitcher of water in front of me, then that is true if there in fact is a pitcher of water in front of me, otherwise it's false. And this, this um, possession of truth conditions, that is something that is totally essential to something's being a content. So that's what leads you into thinking, okay, a truth condition is a sort of correctness condition. It's correct to think that there's a picture of water in front of me precisely when that content is true. And then we talk this way about our beliefs. Belief is one of those states where we call the belief true or correct precisely when its content is. That's not so for desire. <laughs> Our desire for a lot of water <laughs> isn't correct <laughs> when I'm already drinking a lot of water or something like that, right? So the belief is special in, in this connection with that the truth condition of the content is the same as the correctness condition for the state. So it's correct for you to believe a certain thing when the content is true. And then you can think, okay, but correct, correctness, that's that's something normative, isn't it? I mean, if it's correct for me to have that belief, doesn't that mean that I ought to have that belief or should have that belief? Or at least that it's permissible for me to have that belief. Um, and that then makes you very quickly think that, okay, that might be something that is in fact essential to believe. So normativity might be something that we could use for spelling out what belief really is. Because so far, I mean, we only have a certain intuitive, everyday theory kind of take on belief, like what I've been saying so far. I mean, you really want to know, okay, what, what does holding true mean? And what is this state? And then you might think, okay, it's a state that is governed essentially by certain norms. That's how we got into thinking about belief. So it all started by us then saying that, no, we don't think that's correct either. <laughs> we do not think that belief is a state uh, that is essentially governed by certain norms, at least not under certain interpretations of that claim, where you think of the norm as some sort of prescription, something or permission, something that really tells you something about how you should um, go about forming beliefs. Uh, and that gives you guidance in how to go about forming beliefs about the world. And there we um, have a battery of uh, objections to that, to that claim. So we, we don't think that uh, you can characterize belief in that way. And that then also led, led us to ask, of course, okay, so, so how can you do it then? <laughs> what do we think belief is? Um, because all this anti-normativism, of course, is fun, but it's sort of negative. <laughs> so <laughs> Oza and I right now have this um, big project where the title precisely is, so what is belief? <laughs> and that's one of the things we are working on presently. Is it closer to assumptions than 
sort of imagination or fantasy and stuff like that? Or yes, precisely. That yeah. is one of the, the distinctions you start with. So first you make this distinction between the so-called cognitive and cognitive states of mind. So you have desire, which drives you to do something. It's motivational. There's belief, which more guides you what to do if you desire a certain thing and um, has this other, people talk about direction of fit, has this mind to world direction of fit. Your belief is supposed to match how the world is. While with desire, it's the other way around. <laughs> the world is supposed to conform to your desires. <laughs> so that's that's a, a distinction there. But then, and, and that's precisely right, once you have that direction of fit distinction, um, there are more states to be, be distinguished from belief. Imagination, for instance, is one where we don't, it's not that totally easy to say how that goes, right? I mean, we don't speak of correctness when it comes to imagination. Imagination is free. You can imagine whatever you like. <laughs> and the content is not supposed to match that of the world. That would be a funny thing to <laughs> just imagine what's the case anyway. Um, but then there are states which clearly are more belief, like, for instance, assumption, uh, and then you want to find out, okay, what exactly uh, distinguishes me just making an assumption, for instance, because I have to in a certain situation just to be able to act or something, even though I can't find out what actually is the case. What distinguishes assumption or guesses uh, from real belief? I know you also have the concept of alif connected with belief. What, what, what does alif mean? I mean, um, one thing that happens when you think about belief um, is that get tempted to um, characterize it in terms of the role it plays in what people call our folk psychology. So beliefs and desires and assumptions and imaginations and emotions are these states that we all um, cite in order to explain each other's behavior, to justify what we think and have done, to predict what people will do and how to influence them and all these kinds of things. So, so this kind of network of um, wisdom we have about how to go about doing this uh, is called folk psychology. And these um, concepts, belief and desire and so on, they are the... the main concepts in which these explanations deal. And you think, okay, these are explanations that um, give reasons for why people acted a certain way or why they formed certain beliefs. So we call them reasons explanation. And then you can think of these states um, in terms of the role they play in these explanations, um, which leads you to a certain kind of functionalism about these states. So you think, okay, what makes this state into a belief is that it is um, formed in a certain way, for instance, on the basis of evidence, testimony, the senses, logical deduction, what have you, evidential support. Um, and it also has a certain uh, role downstream. So if you have a belief then you will act in certain ways if you also have certain desires. So if you desire a glass of water and um, believe that there is a glass of water in front of you, you might reach for it. Uh, 
So you could think that, okay, belief is that kind of state, or a belief that with a certain content, a belief that there is a glass of water in front of you is a kind of state that together with a desire for water disposes you to a certain way of acting. You act as if that belief was true. Uh, so there we are back to this holding true. And now we're sort of uh, thinking about how that pans out when this state interacts with other states that you have motivational states, for instance. Um, so, and, and that would be what you could call the, the motivational role of belief. Together with desire, it results in certain actions. So you can um, think of it in terms of the, what it disposes you to do. Um, if you put that together and you think of belief as this state that is characterized in terms of a certain input role, <laughs> what causes the belief, what gets you to form beliefs, and what does the belief do afterwards, that's the output role, um, then, then you're basically uh, thinking of belief in functionalist terms. However, as we were saying, um, if you think primarily in out terms of the output role, that is, if you're some sort of dispositionalist about belief, then there are other states that have very similar roles, as has been uh, argued, at least. Um, so assumption can have the very same result as belief. And in certain contexts, imagination or pretense, when you really go into and you play with your child, you pretend this is a bucket and you're an elephant and you're drinking from it and so on, then the content of the imagination will actually motivate you to act in a way that is very similar to that of belief. So the, the, the worry is that just looking at the output role will not distinguish the belief from these other states. But we wanted something that just picks the beliefs, right? And then people go and think about the input role. <laughs> okay, so belief is that kind of state which is formed on a certain kind of evidence basis. It should react to how the world actually looks like, for instance, what people actually tell you, what you have good reason to think. Um, so, so, And if it doesn't do that, then it might be some other state. However, the worry there is that this is over-rationalizing. Um, there are lots of states which seem to be um, almost or totally evidence immune. And I think uh, these days, um, when we look at political discussions, we see a lot of that phenomenon. There is widespread evidence immunity uh, in states that we nevertheless want to characterize as beliefs. So just saying that, okay, evidence is, uh, belief is the evidence-sensitive state will exclude states from being beliefs that we really do think are beliefs. I mean, there will be borderline cases. There are certain delusions where you will not be sure anymore whether it's really apt to characterize these as beliefs or whether that actually is some other kind of state. But anyway, so, so this, is, this is the situation we are in right now in this discussion, that you think, well, the output role would, won't cut it because there are other states that have the same output role. The input role in terms of evidence sensitivity is too narrow. So what to do? And um, that is where both normativism and what you could call aliefism come into the picture. Because normativism will say, okay, it's not evidence immune. It doesn't in fact behave this way, but it ought to. <laughs> so it's belief because it ought to behave a certain way, not because it actually does so. And that way, uh, 
they try to um, save the evidence sensitivity way of characterizing belief. And um, if you think in terms of a leaf, it's exactly the same motivation, but there you um, say that, okay, these states that actually do not behave in the proper evidence-sensitive way, they are belief-like in a certain way, but they aren't belief. We need a separate category for that to sort of keep the extension of belief clean. <laughs> and then come, in comes the concept of, of a leaf, which is something which... Um, philosopher called Tamar Gentler has coined and it's sort of her big thing and it's super interesting um, and, and the main motivation she says is that yes we need this category of state um, that allows us to uh, have a state that has motivational role because evidence immune beliefs will um, make you act in certain ways one great example is um, irrational kind of fear. Um, I don't know whether you know about the skywalk. The skywalk is this U-shaped um, walkway on top of the Grand Canyon, which has a glass bottom. <laughs> so you can walk out there and see the Grand Canyon right below your feet if you manage to walk out. And some people don't. I never would, for instance. It would be absolutely impossible for That's me horrible. to work, walk on that thing. Don't yeah. believe it's safe? Exactly. <laughs> I do believe it's safe. <laughs> and that's why she's saying this thing that prevents me from going out there is not a belief. Because, yes, I do believe it's safe. I see all the people out there, right? But I believe that it's not safe. <laughs> so what's the difference here between fear and belief in this situation? I mean... The difference is that, that, that the A-leaf has this um, very belief-like content which goes into certain kinds of explanation. And um, it, it has a, a clearly describable um, action-producing role, which in this way is very belief-like. Um, it also has an, has an effective component, so in a way, it uh, is in between the beliefs <laughs> and the emotions. Um, uh, so, um, but it's irrational. That's one of the things why it's called alif. It's affective, it's irrational, <laughs> and it's action-motivating. And it has a certain content uh, which will explain why you don't walk out. Uh, namely, that it's not safe. <laughs> which is not really integrated with all the rest of your beliefs and your evidence and so on, which is what makes it an A-leaf. Uh, okay, thank you so much, uh, Katrin. Thank you uh, for having me. This uh, was real fun. <laughs> uh, before we uh, end, I'd like to advertise our lecture series, The Road Less Traveled. Uh, so uh, Katrin will be presenting there today, but... Uh, uh, it would be too late to attend that once this uh, is made available. But the next uh, talk uh, will be given by Åsa Wickfors, uh, who was mentioned uh, today. And that will uh, happen on uh, April 28th uh, at Luxhuset uh, C121 at 3 o'clock. So 
please be there for that. Och eh, vi vill även tacka Larmstudion och Humlabbet för möjligheten att spela in där. Tack! <laughs>